0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So the message tonight is called The Money Trap, uh, The Truth About Wealth. And uh, about maybe four or five days ago... I was in the house, and I can't remember if it was morning when I was getting out of the house to go to work or if it was in the evening that I was leaving for something, Um, but uh, my two youngest boys, Riley and Noah, they're seven and five, uh, were playing together, which is really a fulfilled desire of my wife, these having two way later, that's another story for another time. But but they were playing together, and they were kind of chasing each other, and they were doing some kind of good guy, bad guy thing, and my youngest son Noah, who is wired just a little bit differently than everybody else in the world, um, but we love him, and he just is—he's always smiles. You know, he—he he was running from Riley, who was chasing him for some reason, and Noah was shouting as he ran, "Help me, false idol! Help me, false idol! Help me, false idol! Help me, false idol!" Now I, I know none of the backstory as to what they were playing or why he was saying that but but obviously that caught my attention and I go whoa 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 put the brakes put the brakes on on this for a minute I go what are you saying I said did you just say help me false idol he goes yeah I said no I go I don't care what you're playing you know don't even say that in this house you know help me like you're praying to some false idol and then you know and I'm laughing as I'm saying these things and so then I go upstairs and I see my wife there, and I say, what are you teaching these kids? You know? And she says, why? And I said, because Noah's running around downstairs saying, help me, false idol, help me, false idol, help me, false idol. And she just starts laughing, and she said, I don't know, I don't know where he picked that up, you know, uh, but it wasn't from me. And I just, as I walked away, I just said, he's probably just channeling what everyone else is doing in the world uh, right now, and, and, and God only knows where he's picking that up, you know. But I say that. Uh, by way of of introduction and segue into the topic at hand, um, which is wealth or money and life uh, and relationship or its relationship with humanity. And so uh, uh, as we talk about the money trap, which is really the topic and the theme of this next chapter and a half of Solomon's writing, I wonder if any of you, uh, any of us that are here tonight, Can relate even just to that title have you ever been in a period of your life where you feel trapped and the culprit of that uh, bondage is money in some sense you don't have to shout out if you've ever felt like that at any time where you have felt stuck in your life and somewhere in that uh, prison money is the culprit for that i don't know if you can relate to it but i know that i can uh, on things. And so we're going to see what the Bible has to say about that tonight. Now, uh, money, we could say is the culprit, but money maybe isn't necessarily the bad guy in the thing. Money really is kind of uh, an intangible thing. Money isn't alive. Money doesn't have uh, any real power in and of itself. It gets its power from humanity. But the reason why money has value is because what money is, it is the tangible substance that we receive for giving our energy, our talents, and our time to a cause. And and when we do that, we usually call that work or business. When we give that, we receive wages or we are recompensed or repaid in some way in the form of money. And so what that means is that our time, energy, and talents is invisible things are translated into a physical thing, substance in the form of money, and that's why money has value. Because it's taking what we produce and turning it into something tangible. And so money carries that kind of a value. Now, that's okay, but the problem comes in and where it begins to get uh, tricky and sticky is when we begin to measure the value of our lives based upon how much money we have or how much money we're worth or how much money we make. And when we begin to, to, to uh, assess the value of our lives based on that tangible substance, that's when we get uh, into error. Because what happens is that our natural tendency towards self-love And that's, I mean, you know, there really isn't too much of a self-esteem problem in the world. And I understand, you know, what psychology means when it talks about a self-esteem problem. And yes, that's a problem in that context. But underneath all of that, the reason why there's self-esteem problems is because we have a very high esteem problem of ourselves. We love ourselves. That's just human nature. And that, that goes across the board. That's for every one of us. We look out for ourselves. And so the naturalness of self-love quickly and easily spills over into money love because of the relationship between what we do and what it turns into in the form of money. And when self-love becomes money love, that's when it becomes a problem. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, And he said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some having coveted after have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He does not say that money is the root of all evil. And maybe you've heard that quoted before. You've heard that said. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so evil comes from that love of money, which comes from assessing the value of our lives based upon how much we have, how much we're worth, or how much we make. And we're never to do that because of the trap that comes uh, beyond it. I remember um, there was one point way early in my Christian life, it might have even been in in that little gray season for me when I was becoming a Christian, because for me it wasn't a moment when I came forward. For me, there was like this uh, two-month transition. And, and, you know, maybe you've had that happen in your life and you thought, I don't know if I got saved. You, you got saved. It just maybe just didn't happen in that moment. But it was sometime in that transition phase that I was working for a painter and the foreman who was over, uh, my, my division, um, was a school teacher who painted in the summertime. And he was seeking to kind of mentor or just conversate with me. And he said to me, he said, what are you going to do with your life? And at that point, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. But I was in this place where I wanted to know what God wanted with my life. And so not knowing what to say, my reply to him was, I don't really know. I kind of want to know what God wants with my life. It took a lot of courage for me to even say that, but that was the truth uh, of where I was at. You know, And so I didn't want to sound stupid, so I just said what the truth was. He said, I want to know what God's will. And he looked at me, and he smirked, and he smiled. And he said, God's will for your life is that you make money. That's what he said to me. He said, God wants you to make money. That's what God wants for your life. And what he was basically channeling is, is kind of the ebb and flow of what makes our world work, what drives most of people and what they do and why they do it making money is the why of most people's existence what gets them up in the morning what gets them thinking what gets them stirred and gets them excited is the prospect of making money and it's the why of people it's the rhythm of this world You've heard the phrase, money makes the world go round. Now, what Solomon is going to do, and he was a man who knew a thing or two about money, probably the wealthiest man that ever lived, probably exceeded the wealth of anyone that's alive today, including Mark Bezos and Bill Gates, probably combined, Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever lived. And he knew something about money. And what Solomon is going to do here in this text is something quite remarkable, is that he's going to hold money up in the prism of the truth of God, and he's going to expose it very clearly for what it is. I don't know if in this holiday season of shopping, or maybe just in the daily of of, uh, grocery shopping or anything, you have uh, paid for something with a bill uh, of a denomination of $20 or larger. And when you go to use that bill, you'll see the person behind the register reach in, and they'll pull out one of these counterfeit detection pens. And they'll draw a line on your money, and they're looking for a certain color because there's some kind of reaction between whatever's in that pen and the cotton fibers in the particular paper that money is printed on that will then detect whether or not that's legitimate money or not. And we all have seen that before. And so, okay, this passes the test. This money that promises to hold value of a certain amount is legitimate. And that anti-counterfeit pen proves the legitimacy of this dollar or of this hundred dollars or whatever it is. Now what Solomon is going to do is he's going to look at the vast span of humanity and, and this drive for wealth, material wealth, for silver, for gold, for dollars, for money. And he is realizing from his perspective that money in and of itself carries with it a promise whether that promise is money promising or whether it's a promise that we have projected upon money in our fallenness, but money has a promise. It promises to do something and provide something to the person that possesses it. And what Solomon is going to do is he's going to take God's word as the currency counterfeit detection pen and he's going to swipe money with the Bible, and he's going to see if money actually can provide what it promises that it can. He's going to use the Bible to answer the question, can money do what mankind is hoping that it can do in our pursuit of having more of it for ourselves? And so the first thing that he's going to do in the first three verses of our study, verses 10, 11, and 12 is he is going to take four promises that money gives, and he's going to ask the question, does it produce what it promises? What are the four promises? Number one, money promises satisfaction. Money promises that it will satisfy the person that possesses it. Notice what it says in verse 10. Solomon, he says, he that loves silver, and again, a man who knew a thing or two about having it, the man who loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver. In other words, the person who is seeking to be satisfied by obtaining and possessing money is not going to find satisfaction in their possession or their attainment of money. It's not going to work. Money and possessions don't satisfy the soul, Solomon is saying. They only serve to stretch it out. Meaning that once you obtain and gain the thing that you thought was going to bring you the satisfaction you were seeking. For the moment, maybe it does. But right on the other side of that moment, the appetite for more is equal To the size of the appetite that you had on the front side of having it. In the preparation for this, I heard the story of a man who was exceedingly wealthy. He had homes all over the world. He had a private jet. He had servants, he had lands, he had just way above and beyond even what the rich would have. And this man hosted a a party at his house, uh, and he he had a vast array of guests. And one of the guests that was there noticed that the man who who owned the house and withdrew the party was not out. He was somewhere else, and no one knew where he was. And so finally, this person approached the wife of the man and said, Is he okay? Is he sick? Is anything wrong? And the answer that she gave was, He's fine but he's in his room sulking right now. And he said, what? Why? And she said, because today is his 60th birthday and he did not reach his goal of becoming a billionaire by the time that he was 60. And so this man who had lands and jets and servants and wealth unimaginable was discontent because on his 60th birthday he didn't make, make the goal of being a billionaire. One time Rockefeller the man with a reputation of having great wealth, the oil tycoon, was asked the question in an interview when he was in a very wealthy phase of his later life. And they asked him the question, they said, what was your favorite million to make of all your millions? And his answer without skipping a beat was my next one. And there's this amazing thing about money is that it gives this promise that it's going to satisfy the one who possesses it, but it can never deliver on that promise. Solomon says that the one who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. The second promise that money gives that Solomon uh, refers to in, in the second half, I'm sorry, in the first half of verse 11 is that money promises freedom. Notice what Solomon says in verse 11. He says that when goods increase they are increased that eat them in other words the more you have the more you're going to have to put out after you have to satisfy whether it's the mouths that you have to feed in the form of servants or in the expense that is carried in the things that you need to maintain and so what he's saying here is that although money carries the promise of freedom It doesn't deliver on that freedom because attached to every Benjamin that is made, there is a hidden link of a chain right behind it that you can't see and that you don't perceive. I did a very fast Google search uh, when I came to this subject. In fact, I did this just today. This was one of the final things that I did. And so it was a very fast Google search, and I just typed in book titles, financial freedom. And I challenge you to do that on your own. But what you will find is that there are hundreds of book titles out there where the title contains the word financial freedom. I wrote down just a few so you wouldn't think that I was just making this up. Five Simple Steps to Financial Freedom by Dan Willis. Financial Freedom by, this was auto-corrected, so I don't know the first name, something Abraham. Next one, Financial Freedom, My Only Hope by Jeremiah Brown. Someone's writing really fast. You're going to wish you didn't at the end of the study, okay? trade your way to financial freedom financial freedom a proven path to all you'll ever need the nine steps to financial freedom financial freedom with real estate investing passive income the ultimate guide to financial freedom smart investing for financial freedom designs for financial freedom financial freedom formula journey to financial freedom managing emotions for financial freedom now listen I did not handpick these I took the first chunk that in order that they lined up and it just goes on and on and on and on and on but let me ask you a question concerning this one who is seeking financial freedom through the wisdom of someone who maybe has uh, obtained what it is that they're boasting of. if any one of these methods has actually worked then why are books continually being written on the same subject because if one of these methods or modes of thinking could actually produce what is being promised, then that would be the last book ever written. It would go viral, and everyone would be rich. But that's not the case. Why? Because freedom cannot come through finance. And maybe you've never heard that before, and maybe that even might set you free tonight to realize it is that freedom can't come through finance. And the reason is because the more you have, the more you have to have to take care of the things you have. That's a song. It's a kid's song. It's a good one. The more you have, the more you have to have to take care of the things you have. And it is absolutely the truth There isn't freedom uh, in it. Um, Just recently, I went through a very short season. It was about two and a half days, where in a two and a half day span, I had to do two brake jobs, fix a log splitter, repair a well tank, fix a septic leak somewhere in my yard, dig it up, and my washing machine blew up and filled my house with smoke. And all of that happened in about a two and a half day period of time. And I never felt more unfree in the middle of having a lot of stuff. It promises freedom, but it can't come through on the promise. There's a quote in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. We just watched it as a family. I'm not that well read, but that's why it's fresh in my mind. But it's the part of the the story where um, Scrooge's partner visits him from the dead, uh, and he's carrying all these chains. And when Scrooge finds out that this was his former partner, he asks him about the chains, and the man Marley replies to Scrooge these words. He says, I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it, link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own will I wore it. it is, is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was as full and heavy, as, and as long as this seven Christmas eves ago, you have labored on yours since. It is a ponderous chain. And, 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 and a dark day it is. When a person who has lived for wealth, thinking that it was the key to their freedom, realizes that they have forged their own chains in amassing a vast financial treasure. We all feel like we're in bondage. We feel like we're in bondage to our jobs. We feel like we're in bondage to our bills. We're in bondage to the payments that we have to make on things and the responsibilities that we have. And we erroneously think that the answer to that bondage is going to be to get more money. But all that ever happens is that more money results in heavier and thicker and longer chains. The third promise that money makes that Solomon puts to the test is the promise of an abundant and full life. He uses the word abundance back in verse 10 when he says that he that loves abundance uh, with, you know, that... The, Loves abundance will not be satisfied with the increase of it. But then notice what he says in the second half of verse 11. He says, after he says that when goods increase their increase that eat them, he says, What good is there that is in the goods? What good is there to the owners thereof except the beholding of them with their eyes? In other words, when you look at all of the things that you have and you realize what they do and what they're for, and then you realize that you can only use one thing at a time, then what good is having all of that, except for the fact that you get to look at it and enjoy that you have it? One of the things, a remarkable thing that happened, is that while me and Georgia were having babies, the engines in my garage were having babies too. And I don't know how this happened. But there was one point where I opened my garage, and I have, you know, the descending garage where you go down a full flight of stairs into to the garage. And I just stood at the top of the stairs, and I just spanned. And I think I just cleaned it, which is the only reason why I would do that. And I'm, and I'm looking at the whole thing, and I counted, and there were eight engines in my garage. Eight gasoline engines. Okay, now, before you think I have, like, all these cars and everything, only two of them were cars, Okay, but there was a lawnmower, a log splitter, a chainsaw, a leaf blower, a generator, a rototiller. You know, there's all these engines in there. And I looked around and I go, where in the world did all this come from? And I realized there's eight oil changes that I have to take care of in this. Eight winter risings that I have to take care of. eight, And I'm going, how did this happen? You know? And what he's saying is that, listen, listen. Listen, you can only use one thing at a time. And sometimes we think, well, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. And that is abundance. And Solomon says, it's not abundance, and here's why. Because you can't enjoy it all at once. An abundant life cannot come. Jesus said this, it's Luke chapter 12. He said that the measure or the value of a man's life is not contained in the abundance of the things that he possesses. He actually uses the word abundance. You could put the verse up on the screen. It's not contained in the abundance of the things that he possesses. In other words, it cannot come through that. The fourth thing that Solomon uh, debunks or promise of money that he addresses is the promise that money is going to bring peace of mind. And I don't know if you can relate to this of thinking that when I reach a certain level of income, then I will have peace of mind. Then I will be able to breathe and take it easy. There's going to be a peace of mind. Notice Solomon's answer to that in verse 12. He says that the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats a little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Now, Solomon's answer to the idea that money will bring me peace of mind is that, no, 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 it doesn't work like that because the same peace of mind, P-E-A-C-E of mind, that money is bringing you is being or consuming a piece of your mind, a P-I-E-C-E of your mind, and it happens to be the part of your mind that helps you sleep. And I don't know, again, if you can relate to this, but I know that I can. You know, I mean, there was a point in our marriage when literally all we had to our name was $300 and a 1987 Ford Taurus. And, and, and we've come a long way since then by the grace of God. And we're by no means well-off or rich. We are in the context of third world nations and being Americans. But in the context of our country, we're somewhere in, in that lower middle part, you know. But... My wife, we lay in bed on a rainy night, you know, when the rain is really coming. And she'll say to me, she says, I think she forgets we have this conversation. She'll say, I love falling asleep to the sound of the rain. And I just want to kick her because I hate falling asleep to the, in fact, I don't fall asleep to the sound of rain because when it's raining, all I can wonder is, is it getting in somewhere where it's not supposed to be getting in. And that's what's going on in my mind while she's going, oh, this is so nice. She don't care if there's a waterfall down the living room wall on the inside because she knows that's my problem, not hers. You know. <laughs> and so the abundance of those that have prevent them from resting and sleeping. And so the very peace that money promises to provide The possessor of it realizes that it doesn't produce on the promise that it made. And if you've ever been there, you understand exactly what Solomon is talking about. So what he does next is he gives us a little bit of perspective to help us navigate this whole concept of relating to wealth in a fallen world. Because every one of us has to use currency and money while we're here on earth. So how do we do that? without getting sucked into the trap and the lie that money is going to do something for us that it really can't do, and ultimately then bring us under its power. Two things Solomon's going to say in the remainder of our study. One of them is the practical, and it really consumes the rest of our text. And then there's a spiritual, which he hits in the very last verse in chapter 6, verse 12, the last verse of our study. But the first thing, just the practical element of how you and I are to relate to wealth in this world boils down to one thing, is to keep a light touch. Keep a light touch on it, and here's why. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says that there is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. In other words, riches possessed by a person that actually do them more harm than good. He says, but those riches perish by evil labor. Here's that labor. He begets a son, and there is nothing in his hand. In other words, the rich man gives birth to a son who doesn't have the aptitude or the ability to create wealth in the same way that the father did of the first generation. And so he says... That as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he will take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And so the first generation of man is gonna die off, and all he can do is leave behind the wealth that he amassed to the member of the second generation that maybe doesn't have the ability to manage it or earn it himself. And he says, and this also is a sore evil that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit does he have that labors for the wind? And so Solomon essentially is saying, keep a light touch, number one, because you can't take it with you. We are just passing through in this world. And when we go from here, we actually take less with us than what we came with. Because at least when we came into the world, we have a body, but we don't even leave with that. We leave with nothing. And therefore, if we keep wealth and money in its perspective, we will realize that no matter how much we have, it doesn't go with us when we die. So keep a light touch on it. You know, a few weeks ago, I used the illustration of the Chuck E. Cheese tickets. You know, kids with their currency in Chuck E. Cheese, these valueless tickets that they used to buy squirt guns and bracelets and whatnot. But really, I mean, there's no better way to look at money than than as those Chuck E. Cheese tickets. I mean, money is Chuck E. Cheese tickets that work in this world. You can use them for anything you want in this world. But as soon as you enlarge the borders of life outside and beyond this world, money becomes absolutely worthless. And if you keep that in your mind, it helps you to keep a light touch and thus not be brought under its power, under its bondage. He says, secondarily, concerning keeping the light touch in verse 17, he says that all of his days also, and this is the rich man, he says that he eats, and that is to consume, satisfy himself, add things to himself, buy things, possess things, that all of his days he consumes in darkness, and he has much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. He says, basically, listen, keep a light touch on money because there's two things money can't buy. Money cannot buy truth, and money cannot buy health. He eats in darkness. It means that there is something gnawing at him on the inside that he is trying to satisfy with the amassing of wealth and possessions. In all of his life, he is chasing after that something Eating, but eating in darkness. Darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for not knowing truth. He doesn't know the truth about the money that he's serving. And so he's living his life in darkness, trying to fill something that he doesn't even understand. And money can't buy understanding. It can't buy truth. It says that he experiences wrath in his sickness. Do you know why a rich man experiences wrath in his sickness? Because he can't buy the solution to his ailment. Have you ever been around a really rich person when they don't get what they want? This would be an unsaved rich person, I hope. But I have. When you tell a rich person that they can't have something that they want, they usually respond with anger because rich people aren't used to being told that they can't have something that they want. Whatever the price is or the price tag says, they'll pay it and they can. And if there is no way that they can obtain it, they usually respond with anger. And when a person gets sick and no amount of money can buy them a doctor... Or a treatment or a solution to the ailment that they have. It says Solomon here, he says, even in my day, he says that there's wrath in their sickness. Keep a light touch. He says, Behold, that which I have seen. Now, the third thing is going to be positive. This is the person who gets it. He says, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and beautiful. For someone who can eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, that he takes under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his portion. And every man also to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him power to eat of it. In other words, a person who labors and receives the fruit of that labor and that possesses it in its proper context. They use money the right way. They use money. Money doesn't control them. Money is their servant, not their master. And thus they have it And they enjoy what God has given them in the context of its truth and its existence. And God has, with that money, also given them the power, as it says there, to eat it. Meaning that they know how to use it. They have the wealth and they know how to use it in its proper way. And Solomon says, this is a beautiful thing. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answers him in the joy of his heart. Basically, what he's saying is this, is that that man is not going to be filled with sorrow and regret as he looks back upon his life. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that he had a proper relationship with money and wealth. Now, we're going to talk more about this when we get to chapter 11, because when we get to chapter 11, Solomon's actually going to teach us how to make money. So money isn't bad. Having money isn't bad. But the way we relate with money makes all the difference between bondage and freedom, joy and sorrow in our lives. Now, the fourth thing concerning having a light touch, he says, beware of the disease. I hope that piques your interest. Did your parents or anybody or maybe your parents and you tell your kids, you ever tell, tell your kids that money has germs If you've handled money to wash your hands. You ever notice the people that handle a lot of money, like in banks, they wear rubber gloves? Why? Because who washes money? I mean, think about it. If you have a dollar bill in your wallet from 1994, that's a long time. And that's a lot of hands that that's passed through without being washed. Can you imagine what's on that bill or on those coins? Right, Vinny? You know. (laughs) deals with quarters, you know. That's crazy to think about. But do you know that there's a spiritual germ? There's the potential to have a spiritual disease. Notice what Solomon says in verse 1. He says, There is an evil which I have seen under his son, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he lacks nothing for his soul of all that he desires. So this man is loaded down. He's got everything he could want. Yet, with all of that wealth, God gives him not power to eat thereof but a stranger will eat it this is vanity and an evil disease i don't know if you've ever known anybody like this i know that i have is that someone who is just stupid filthy rich has more than they'll ever be able to spend and yet they don't have power to spend it they have so much money they have so much wealth there's so much that they could do but they are so controlled and under the dominating force of that wealth that it pains them to spend any of it because of the fear that I'm going to have less than what I already do or that I'll give out more than I'm getting back. And Solomon says that this is an evil disease and every dollar that passes through your hand and my hand has this germ on it. Do you know what the immunity is to keep from getting this disease? be a giver be someone who gives be someone who is liberal and that let has a loose hold on things proverbs chapter 11 verse 24 solomon again the writer he says concerning people some people he says i have seen someone who scatters and yet increases and there is someone who withholds more than is necessary and that tends towards poverty And so the immunity against being trapped by money is to be liberal with it. Use it as a tool. Don't let it use you as a slave. That's the principle. Well, Solomon finishes out through verses 3 through 11 by basically showing us the end of life. What does the end of a life look like that is lived primarily for wealth? He says, If a man beget a hundred children... And live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good. Meaning that he's had a lot of things, he's done a lot of things, he's had a lot of time. But his soul, the hunger inside, the thing that longs to be satisfied, if that is never touched with good. And also that he have no burial, he say, I say that an untimely birth is better than he, someone who is stillborn. For he comes in with vanity and departs in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. He has no truth. Moreover, he has not seen the sun nor known anything. This has more rest than the other. A stillborn has more rest than a rich man. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet has he seen no good, do not all go to one place. In other words, if a man lives two lifetimes, a thousand years each, even to the point where he experiences great wealth, but he never understands the truth of what life is all about, and he lives primarily to serve the purpose of that wealth and obtaining wealth, then that person's life has been wasted, even if it's 2,000 years long. Look, I don't think I'm going to die a rich man. But if I had 2,000 years, I would figure it out. I'm not going to figure it out in 80. I I can tell you that right now. I know the way I'm wired. But if I had 2,000 years, I'd crack the code. And what Solomon's saying is this, if you had 2,000 years and you never come to realize money in its proper context and realize truth of what man was made for and what really does satisfy a life, he said, you've wasted 2,000 years of time and 2,000 years of food. For what has the wise man more than the fool and what has the poor that knows to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. For that which has been is named already, and it is known that it is, uh, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he, seeing there be many things that increase vanity. What is man the better? This is Solomon's intellectual tailspin of trying to figure out the resolution and the landing place of all of these things. But notice the question. Two questions that he closes out the chapter with that are open ended questions that leave us with something to consider for our own lives. Notice he says, For who knows what is good for man? And you could just pause right there, highlight that much of the verse, and ask yourself the question For who knows what is good for man? I will give you two clues. Number one is that the answer is not in Barnes and Noble, not in Anywhere, on any of the shelves, the answer is not there. And number two, the answer is not going to come from a human being. What is good for man? You're not going to find that answer in a book, a website, Google, a human being. (laughs) There is an answer, but you're not going to find it there. For who knows what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life, which he spends as a shadow. And here's question number two. For who can tell a man What shall be after him under the sun? In other words, who can tell a man what is coming in the future? And again, there is no man that can answer that question. That question has an answer, but the answer is not going to come from man. The answer is the answer will come from God. God is the one who can tell you what is the purpose of your life. God knows what's good for man. And God's willing to communicate that answer. And God knows what's coming in the future, and God is also willing to give that answer on things. And, and, and so Solomon's first answer to the question of what, what should be the right relationship of man to wealth is keep a light touch. Know what money is and use it in its proper context. But there's another answer. There's a better answer, an answer that doesn't come from Solomon, but an answer that comes from God. If we were to ask God these two questions concerning our own lives, we were to say, God, what is good for me? What is your plan for my life? God, if you were to drive me in a particular direction and just put a drive in my heart towards your perfect will, what would that be? Or if you were to ask God, What's to come? What's to be with my future? What, what am I to do? God has an answer. And here's, here's God's answer to this question concerning money and currency. God's answer is that there is a better currency, there is a more lasting currency than the currency of money that man trades and that man gives. He tells us what it is in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, and this was one of those verses I was really hoping would go up on the back wall. Mr. Sound man, I know it's not your fault. What does it say? I'll look up on the side screen. It's First Timothy 4, 8. Okay, we don't have that one either. Okay, paraphrase, and maybe I'll get it right. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, says these words. He says that bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness, listen, godliness is profitable unto all things. It has promise in the life that now is and in the life which is to come. In other words, there is a currency that God has control of that has profit and benefit in this life, but that also has profit and benefit in eternal life. And he calls that currency godliness. What is godliness? Godliness literally is a God-infused life. It's a life where A person is enveloped in the presence of God. A godly person is a person who walks with God and knows God and is filled with God. And when you come to that place in your life where your relationship with God is such that you're so immersed in his presence and in his person that he becomes one with you. That's what communion is. It's becoming one with God and the essence of godliness becomes the defining characteristic of your life, then you become the richest person, not only on earth, but the richest person also in eternity. Because when you're a person who is rich in the currency of godliness, you're going to possess satisfaction. That first of things that money promises, but that it cannot produce within the promise. In John chapter 6, we have the narrative right after jesus fed five thousand we all know the story of jesus feeding five thousand with a few fish and a few loaves but john gives us a little bit of the conversation that took place after that whole interaction and when all the people were flocking around jesus wondering about this miracle jesus looks at them he perceives the thoughts of their mind and he says to them you seek me not because of the miracles that you saw but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Literally, because you were satisfied. There was something satisfying about what was done when you were in my presence. And then he adds on this exhortation to the people, verse 27. He says, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for the meat which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For him has God the Father sealed. And then they inquired a little bit more. And Jesus said to them in verse 32, He said, Truly, truly, I say unto you that Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. The bread of God, that which satisfies, is not an it. It's not a miracle. It's not a substance. It's not even physical, tangible bread. He puts it person- personally to Himself. It says that it's He. Bread is He. Verse 35, Jesus said this. And Jesus said unto them, listen, he said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. That's an amazing promise. I mean, that's something that God would have to come through on, isn't it, for him to be God? And essentially what he's saying to you and I, by way of a promise, is that if we will come to him, and ask him to be the sole source of satisfaction in my life, and to bring me to a place in my life and in my soul where I don't have a thirst for something that money can buy, but that comes from somewhere else, then Jesus promises that he'll come through on that promise. And so godliness is a currency that we can possess that will bring satisfaction even when money can't. Jesus also brings freedom, godliness, the currency of godliness brings freedom. In Romans chapter 3 verse 24, when Paul was talking about redemption, the redemption that Jesus brought when he hung on the cross and died, he says that through his redemption we are justified freely by his grace, the grace that's in Christ Jesus. But he uses that word redemption. Do you know what redemption means? It means It's the picture of a person going into a slave market and purchasing a slave. They're redeeming them from the slave market. And there were three different types of redemption. One was when someone would be redeemed to be traded. It was the slave trade. It's just dealing. I'm buying you for this price. I'm selling you for this price. But you're a slave even though you've been redeemed. The second form of redemption is is purchase for individual use. So I'm purchasing you out of the slave market so that you can become my slave. But that's not that word either. The third one, the third redemption, is when you purchase a slave out of the slave market for the sole purpose of setting them free. That's what that word means in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Is that when Jesus hung on the cross and died and paid the price for our sins to bring us out of darkness and into truth and life, he did that not so that we could be traded to someone else, not so that we could be slaves of his, but so that he could set us free. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, He says that if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Say it loud. And then in verse 36 of the same chapter, Jesus said, Whom the sun sets is free. Indeed. He purchases us for freedom. And the thing that we're trying to obtain through financial means cannot come, but Jesus brings it on a deeper level. Money promises an abundant life, but possessions can only be enjoyed one thing at a time. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 10 that he came as the good shepherd to lay down his life for us and to give us abundant life. Not an abundance of the things that we possess, but an abundance of what we experience in him in the deepest part of who we are to where there is such an expression of joy that comes out of us because of what he is in us and to us. And nothing in this world can produce that. But Jesus promises that he can. And finally, the peace of mind that money promises but can never produce. The currency of godliness that comes through Jesus Christ is also promised to us. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, He said, My peace I will give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Jesus was giving a promise that he's going to give his peace unto his people. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then he defines that peace just a few verses later in chapter 16, verse 33, this way. He says, these things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now this is important definition of the peace that he gives. Because what he's telling us here is that the peace that he gives is not a peace that's going to come because he pulls us out of every troubling situation. He's saying that the peace that I'm going to give you is so strong and so powerful that it is going to triumph over the tribulations that are robbing you the peace that you so desperately long for. That the peace that I give is a stronger peace. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he said that this peace comes through this. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And here's what will happen. The peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard or keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. He gives a peace that this world knows nothing of, and it's a peace that supersedes even the anxiety that our troubles bring to us. It's a promise that He gives us of the peace that He gives, that He alone can give. You know, the answer to this currency that's available, this currency that we're exhorted to be rich in, the answer in a word is Jesus. But in order to have it, we have to transfer our trust. See, if we're trusting in wealth, if we're chasing after it as the answer to those things, then it leaves Jesus on the margins where he can't affect us in the way that he wants to and in the way that he could. But what he calls us to is he calls us to recognize the false things that we've been chasing, to label them as false, and to make a transition or a transfer of our allegiance and our devotion to those things that cannot do what they promise to the one who is and can It's been said well that every heart has one throne on it. And it's true. That's why Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. It's one or the other. And so, you might be here tonight, and in the honesty of your heart, you might say, you know what, I'm caught in the money trap. I've been living my life chasing after these things, chasing after wealth. And I ask you tonight, if you're a Christian here, you know Jesus Christ, and you say, yeah, that's been my life. I have no peace. I have no satisfaction. None of these things that that money promises me have delivered on the promise, and yet I find myself consumed and continually chasing after it. And you know what? I'm caught in the money trap. Well, Here's God's word to you tonight, is that he would have you free, and he could set you free. Maybe you recognize, you say, you know what? I didn't get here in a day, and I don't know if I can change the progression to the momentum of my life that's been going down this way i don't know if i can even do that if it's even possible but i ask you this christian you know you're going to heaven your name is written there but you're not experiencing the fullness of god in this life now if you would be set free i would just ask you right now just maybe lift your hand up and let me pray for you we would pray together you would say yeah you know what that's me i've been caught in the money trap i have believed the lie that money is going to come through satisfaction I believe the lie that money's going to bring me freedom. The lie that abundance abundant of life comes through money. I've believed it. I've fallen right there. I believed it. I want to be set free. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for those of us in this room to find ourselves right now in that place where we have put our trust in something other than you to be what only you can be. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your freedom. And right now in a declaration of faith and Honesty and trust. Lord, we renounce those things that we've put our hope in. And we ask, Lord, that you would be all that you said you would for each of us. Lord, we recognize that we have robbed you of your place. And then that same sense robbed ourselves of what we could have. So help us, Lord. Bring us where we need to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus personally. And you don't know his peace at all. Listen, God is the one who gave you the desires that you're trying to fill with whatever you're using to try to fill it. But those desires were not given to you because they could be fulfilled with something that you could put in. They were given to you by God because they can only be fulfilled by God. And what he did in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross is that he traded places with you so that you could be justified of every wrongdoing and sin and that your darkness could be turned into light. He is willing tonight to forgive and cleanse everything that you've ever done in your life and to come into a relationship with you that will envelop you in his presence in such a way that the very meaning for your existence can be satisfied in the person of him. And you know what? It's free. It's free. The Bible closes Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 with the words, Come. If you're thirsty, come. If you have no money, buy. Drink from the waters of life. It's been provided freely. And Jesus is available to you. And what it takes for you is a willingness to say, Jesus, I want you in the throne of my heart. I need you in my life. And I'm willing that you would lead me away from every other thing. I trust you as my Savior and my Lord, my friend and my shepherd. And I want you to be my God. And if you're here tonight and maybe God is by His Holy Spirit knocking on your heart and saying, would you open to me? I invite you to invite Jesus into your heart right now and you can do that just by lifting up your hand and praying with me. And I'll lead you in a prayer. Is there anyone here tonight that you want to know Jesus personally and have the answer for all of your longings fulfilled and the one who can fill those things? Anyone here? See a, a hand? If you've never prayed this prayer, pray this with me. And Christians, you pray this too, so no one feels like they're praying alone. Lord God, I invite you into my heart. I confess my need, and I ask you to do what nothing else can. Please forgive my sins, help me to be free from them. Be the answer. Be my Lord. Be my God. I believe in you. Save me. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Father, I just pray that you would use these things and help us, especially this season. Oh Lord, keep us. Hold us. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.